Good morning. Let's read the Gospel of Luke, chapter 11, verses 1 through 13. It happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as uh, John also taught his disciples. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. Then he said to them, suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, friend, Lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has come to me from a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And from inside, he answers and says, Do not bother me. The door has has already been shut, and my children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, Yet, because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Now suppose one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish. He will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he has asked for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? An officer and a private were the last two men alive in a World War I trench. This is a a humorous story. I I hope you'll find it. So they're the last two guys alive. There's no way of escape. The enemy is closing in on their position. So the officer turns towards the private and says, Smith, there's only one thing left to do. Pray. To which Smith uh, replies, "But, but sir, I've never prayed before in my life. I don't care. You have orders, Smith. I said pray. But, but sir, I, I only know one prayer. Smith, I'm not going to tell you again. Now pray. All right, sir. And as the bullets whistled past his head, Smith clasped his hands together, closed his eyes, and said, For what we are about to receive, may the Lord make us truly thankful. If you only know one prayer, it is likely that you, you know the Lord's Prayer or you know the, the common form of the prayer, for, prayer of grace before a meal. I grew up in a Christian family, and it's a strange thing for me to admit, but I was actually taught not to pray the Lord's Prayer. It wasn't my, uh, I don't think it was my father who taught me. I couldn't tell you which Sunday school teacher passed on this this to me, but there was this idea that Jesus never intended the Lord's Prayer to be recited word for word. It's supposed to be a pattern for prayer. It's supposed to show us the the shape 
and scope of a good prayer. But it was never intended by God to be something that we recite verbatim. And I think one of the reasons why we, we, we're skeptical towards it as far as a formulaic prayer is concerned is, is we just thought that all prayer had to be extemporaneous in order for it to be real. You know, prayer, for prayer to be genuine, it needs to be off the top of your head and conversational, which, by the way, is one of the reasons a lot of us are very uncomfortable praying in public because we've got to come up with something and, and everybody's listening to us. Well, I still believe in the goodness of extemporaneous prayers and conversational prayers, but I have henceforth uh, realized that the teaching that I had been taught as a, as a young boy, as a young Christian, was incorrect. And it's contradicted in verse 2 by Jesus' words. Look there with me. It says, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John also taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, say this. He, he intends us to say this. And um, I really believe that the Lord intends us to say this prayer frequently, much more frequently than most of us are in the habit of doing. I've read to you from the gospel according to Luke. You probably noticed that it's different than the gospel according to Matthew and the Lord's Prayer as recorded in Matthew's gospel. This is considered or called the shorter form of the Lord's Prayer. It omits a couple of the petitions that are found in Matthew's prayer. For instance, you notice that there was no... Um, there was no Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's not part of Luke's version. Also, there was no deliver us um, from evil. That also is omitted. And then neither of the two prayers actually have the, do- the doxology, which is normally we, we recite at the end. Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Neither of them record those two doxologies. And the reason is simply because in the earliest manuscripts we have of the New Testament, it's not to be found. We believe that the doxology was added there later. But the question I've asked, and maybe you've asked it as well, is why, why is Luke's account of the Lord's Prayer shorter? What's the reason for it? The more I studied it this, the, this week, the more I, I realized that I'm not sure. <laughs> there isn't a great answer to that question, uh, other than it's probable that Jesus taught the Lord's Prayer on more than one occasion. So he probably taught it with some variations from time to time. That would be expected. So we're not sure why the one is shorter than the other. But what we are pretty sure about, historians tell us that an observant Jew like Jesus Christ, all observant Jews in the first century would set aside as a minimum three different times during the day in order to pray. Whatever they were doing, they would stop whatever it was that they were doing. And in the evening, uh, which for them would be considered the beginning of the day, they would pray. They would also pray in the morning. And then they would pray in the late afternoon, about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, during the time of the what was considered the evening sacrifice. Three times, whatever you're doing, you stop and you pray. Interestingly, that was also the practice of the early Christians. So around the end of the first century, the beginning of the second century, there we have this instructional manual that is called the Didache, 
I've talked about the Didache before. The Didache, which is basically written to young Jewish Christians, newbie Christians, and instructing them on, on how to conduct the Christian life. And what the Didache says at the end of the first century is you are to pray the Lord's Prayer three times a day. Three times. That's a whole lot of our fathers. <laughs> 21 times a week. Is that how often you pray it? That's uh, 1,100 times a year. Over the course of a, a normal first century lifetime, that's 33,000 Lord's prayers. Is that what Jesus wants from us? Well, I doubt that it is. But as I said earlier, I am convinced he wants us to pray this much more frequently than we do, not just on Sundays. And I think it would help us so much. I mean, one of the reasons most of us would agree that keeping a consistent prayer life is one of the hardest parts of the Christian life. Most of us would say that, um, that we feel a tremendous amount of guilt about our own prayer lives, don't we? There's, I mean, there's a lot of failure and a lot of frustration. If we were to grade ourselves on how how healthy and good our prayer lives are this morning, you know, A, B, C, D, or F. I mean, we, we probably wouldn't grade out very well. Um, it seems like prayer is just a series of fits and starts. Sometimes you're doing really, really well, and then you just come crashing to the ground, and, and your prayer life is utterly anemic. One of the quotes I came across this week was Billy Graham. When Billy Graham was 80 years old, he said, about his lifelong struggle with prayer, quote, we never get it licked. <laughs> we never get it licked. I took some, some comfort in the fact that even Billy Graham, when he's in his 80s, he's still having to battle and to fight in order, in order to pray. So I, I can tell you this morning, um, I, I haven't gotten it licked, but I'm in the fight I'm, I'm not satisfied with my prayer life, probably like you, but I have not given up the fight. And, I, and so what I thought I would do is try to share with you some pieces of advice that I've received from older Christians, which have, um, have been helping me in the fight for prayer. So the first one is this, number one, if you're taking notes. What I would recommend, recite a line of the Lord's Prayer and then extemporaneously expand on it. If you are looking for a fruitful way to pray, recite a line of the Lord's Prayer and then more personally, uh, more specifically, expand on its meaning. Have you ever done that before? You start out by saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And then you, you transition into your own prayer language. Lord, I long for your name to be honored in my life today. Um, I, I beg that your name might be the most sacred, important um, thing in, in the world today. I pray, God, that your name would be sanctified, set apart, considered the most glorious reality in all of the universe, and spoken with reverence by millions of different languages across the world today. And, I mean, the thing is, it doesn't have to be grade A, great prayer material. You can just speak 
the way that you normally speak. But you have a direction to go. It's a direction that the Lord himself has shown you. Um, I mean, isn't one of the reasons we don't pray more because we, we bow our heads and we don't know what to say? There are many times where I'm like, Lord, I got nothing. I'm speechless. I really, I, I am without words. What am I supposed to say right now? I, I mean, it's so ironic that I preach for a living uh, when if you talk to my family, there's a lot of times that I, I just want to be quiet and I have a very difficult, it's very difficult for me to find the words. And that happens again and again in prayer. Um, but here's a solution. Recite the second line of the Lord's Prayer, which is, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's actually petitions number two and number three. But you recite it, and then you realize that expresses one of the deepest aches inside of the human soul. We look out our window, or we pull up our, our um, news, and we believe it feels like the world is going crazy. God, this world is going crazy. Won't you bring your kingdom here? It, the, the ache of our souls is that God's righteous, holy, loving, peaceful, just reign would come to earth as it is presently right now in heaven. And you just you riff on that idea. Lord, why is it taking so long for your kingdom to come? Do you realize... Do you, do you see what's going on down here? And I, more than anything in the world, I would love for you to bring Jesus' kingdom to this earth today. So what you notice in the Lord's Prayer is it's basically broken up into two sections. You have your first three petitions, which all focus on a very Godward element. Your name, your kingdom, your will. All of it is focused on, on God is the great reality. You'd say the Lord's Prayer starts out very God-centered, or as I would say, vertical. It's a vertical prayer for the first half of it. And then in the second half, it transitions to the horizontal considerations, where we begin to uh, you know, pray about bread, pray about forgiveness, and, and pray about protection. So the Lord's Prayer starts vertically. We don't come to God with our grocery list of, oh, I need you to do this, 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 and this for me. We start vertically. Your kingdom, your name, your uh, will, our bread, our forgiveness, our, t- our deliverance. So give us this day our daily bread. Lord, I pray that you would meet my physical, mental, emotional, spiritual needs today. That's usually what we pray most about. We pray about our needs, and it's perfectly appropriate to do so. Uh, Pray about it right there in the giving of the daily bread. Normally, our prayer lists consist of people who are sick, people who are unemployed, people who... Bring it right there. Specifically name those people halfway through your prayer. Lord, I pray that your daily sustenance would be given, and you just... You go through the list of people asking God to provide what is necessary for today. That is the the trick. I'm praying for daily bread. You probably heard it said before that God does not promise to back up a a dump truck and 
pour a bunch of gold medallions in our, um, in our front yard. He, he doesn't give us this great big endowment of millions and millions of dollars. He gives us the bread that is sufficient for today so that we would keep depending on him. That's what we pray. Then the next, the fifth petition of the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us, well, what is it? Forgive us our trespasses as, as those who trespass against us or is it, as we recite here at All Saints, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors? Why are the two renditions of the Lord's Prayer different? Uh, which one did you grow up with? Just by um, a show of hands. Did you grow up with forgive us our trespasses? All right. And forgive us our debts? It's about 50-50. Well, the answer, Matthew's version of the Lord's Prayer speaks primarily of debts Luke's version of the Lord's Prayer speaks primarily of trespasses and sins. They're, they're, uh, they're synonymous. It's, it's the same idea. It's God, forgive me of my sins, just like I will, I promise to forgive all the people who sin against me. If you look at Matthew's version, it, it actually, it, it suggests that If you don't forgive people their sins against you, God's not going to forgive uh, your sins against him. And it's, It's like it would be the utmost of hypocrisy for me to go and ask God to forgive me of my sins while I'm still holding grudges and bitterness towards my ex wife, my ex husband, my boss, my coworker, my brothers and my brother and sister. C.S. Lewis, he had that wonderful quote. He said, To be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable in others because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. And it it would be the height of hypocrisy for me to go and ask for forgiveness while not doing the same. So at the fifth petition of the Lord's Prayer, you stop and you do a heart check. You figure out, is there anybody that I'm still bearing hardness of heart towards? And, And don't go any further until... That's taken care of. Finally, sixthly, the sixth petition of the Lord's Prayer is, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I, I've always, is this, this is an interesting petition. Is, are we asking God in the sixth petition to make it so that he'll, he'll pave the road of life such that we never experience temptation? <laughs> Are we asking him, God, just give me the, the spiritual easy street where I'll go through? And I, Obviously not. What we are asking is, God, when I am tempted, when I am tested, when I am in the trial, do not let me fail. Do not let me lose the victory. Either give me the wisdom at that moment to flee like Joseph from Potiphar's wife, or give me the strength, the courage to stand firm in, uh, with the sword of the Spirit and the shield of faith. Either make me flee or make me stand. But whatever you do, do not let me fall. Again, you find your, your best way of expressing that. So to summarize, you, rec- you recite and then you expand. Um, 
I know that some of you are movie buffs. You love small budget foreign films. So you probably heard of this movie that I read about. I've never seen it. It was a Russian film made in 1979 called The Stalker. Anybody? The Stalker? I'm sure this got English subtitles. The Stalker. It is a, it, it's a movie that was set in, in a post-apocalyptic world sometime after the world has undergone some global disaster. And there are three main characters in the story. There, are, there is the writer, the professor, and Stalker. And they are headed someplace that is ambiguously called The Room. Stalker has been to the room before, and he is leading the other two men on their journey to the room. And as they get closer, Stalker tells them why they're going to the room. He tells them that in the room, your innermost wish will be made true. He says, gentlemen, this is the most important moment of your lives because this is the place where you get exactly what you want. It's at that moment that the problem begins to dawn on the professor and the writer. Um, what if I don't know what I want? And the stalker says, well, that's, that is for the room to decide. The room reveals all. You know, what you get is not what you think you wish for, but you actually get what you most deeply wish for. And then a disturbing epiphany comes upon the professor and writer they realize, what if the desires that they're conscious of are actually not their innermost longings? What if underneath all of the stories they tell themselves about what they think they are or what they should want, what if the desires that are humming underneath the surface are entirely different? It's an interesting psychological study because it really goes back to the question of what do you really truly more than anything else in the, in the whole world, what do you want? I, and so it made me reflect. What would I come out with if I went into the room and came out the other side? Uh, what do, if I got one wish granted to me that above all else, and I, I just think that I, I would come out that, I would come out that room um, not a better man, but a worse man. The older you get as a Christian, the more, hopefully, you doubt your own desires. The more distrustful you become about, about what you want and what you think is best. It's the whole um, adage of if you give a five-year-old Aladdin's lamp, you know, here you go, honey. You just rub it and you get three wishes they're yours automatically. All you have to do is speak it out loud. If you knew that your five-year-old was about to get Aladdin's lamp and three wishes were, were a coming, what would you do? Wouldn't you run? Wouldn't you head to the hills? Wouldn't you climb to the top of Simplot's Hill? Because you know the disaster is coming in the hands of a five-year-old. There's a three-ring circus with, with elephants and lions that's going to be in the middle of your living room in a second. Right? The older you get as a Christian, you realize, I'm not so different than that five-year-old. Which is why I need the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer is a tutorial in godly desires. 
you, you frequently pray the Lord's Prayer in order to, to retrain yourself. Because when you're praying the Lord's, memorizing and repeating this prayer, you're training yourself to yearn for the best things in the universe. To, to, to plead that God's glory and name would be held in highest honor. That his kingdom would come, not Brad's kingdom would come. His will would be done, not your will would be done. You pray that God would just provide the the sufficient food for people. That each person would find reconciliation with God through the forgiveness of their sins. And each person be protected from the snares and temptations and the grasp of the evil one who is real and who is there. You pray the Lord's Prayer frequently because you know that that is not what you most deeply want. And you need to be retrained. And I, that's why I'm, I'm firm, firmly of the opinion that our prayer lives need to be full of the Lord's Prayer and a steady day, uh, diet of the Psalms, because the Psalms, we need that in order, order to retrain ourselves. Well, that's my first major point. Look with me at verse 5. In verse 5, Jesus goes on and he tells them a story, uh, the story of this is the neighbor at midnight, as it's been called. It's the story of a man in crisis. Um, somebody shows up at his door in the middle of the night, and he has absolutely nothing to feed them with. His cupboards are in, entirely bare. The reason we know his cupboards were entirely bare is because when he goes to his next-door neighbor's house, he doesn't ask for caviar. He just asks for three loaves of bread. If you don't have three loaves of bread, just the basic staple sustenance of food to, to share with and offer to a traveler, you got, you're really bare in the cupboard. So he goes to the next-door neighbor in a state of desperation. The next-door neighbor is living in what would be common for them, a one-room house. So you just have one main living room, which also functions as the, the bedroom. Uh, maybe the husband and wife, they lie on the bed and a couple of the children lay in the bed with them as well. But probably there's plenty of children lying on the floor. I mean, it's just a one room. It's almost like a tent. You're out camping. Uh, probably that's a good way of thinking of it. It's, you're just, everybody's laying there in the dead of the night it, camping. And it really would be a hardship to wake up and give them these three loaves of bread. Those of you who have little children, you know what great links you will go to to keep from disturbing a child who's fallen asleep in their car seat in the, in, in the back. You will do anything to stop you know, having a potty break on a long trip if your toddler or your baby is asleep in, in the back of the car. Well, that's kind of the analogous situation here. I, I don't want to wake up. I don't want to wake up my family and my kids. Go away. Go away. And Jesus says, but... He ends up getting what he wants. Verse 8. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet, in our translation says, because of his persistence. And that's a really bad translation of the the word there. The word relates to shame. There's two interpretations of it. Um, One is the reason he goes and gets the bread is because of the shamelessness of the knocker. The knocker comes 
And he has the audacity in the middle of the night to, to rouse an entire family to ask for bread. And it's because of his bold shamelessness, the man does So that's, but I think the second interpretation is, most, is the most likely one. It's because of the shamelessness of the man inside the closed door. Because he does not want to be ashamed, if he were to deny a neighbor such a, a basic request, asking a neighbor in a desperate situation, just asking for bread, if he were to deny that request, his name would be mud. For, you know, it would spread, the story would spread all through the village by the next morning. And people would say, shame on you for doing that. He would feel ashamed. It all goes back to a shame and honor society where the most important thing you did was you protected you and your family's honor. Well, here's the, the punchline. Jesus says, he says, if a man like that will meet his neighbor's need to maintain his own honor, how much more do you think your honorable heavenly father will will do in order to meet your needs? If you can trust on a, a schmaltz like that to get up and be bothered in the middle of the night, bother your heavenly father in the middle of the night. He's so much more inclined to answer your prayers. Bother him by desperately going and pleading for the honor of his name. God, I'm asking this from you because I am sure this will add to and enhance and further your honor. Because you're the most honorable one. And I think that's where he's trying to go with the first image. Then secondly... His second picture is he likens, he likens prayer to knocking. Um, have you ever noticed this, that if you knock once, it's not a knock? So somebody comes to the door and, and all they do is, it sounds like a thud. It doesn't sound like a knock. People inside, they're not going to know that you're there. They're going to think that something fell in the garage. <laughs> no, um, the wind blew and uh, the tree, something fell over. The simple thud is not a knock. The idea is in order to knock, it's got to be, it has to be repeated and vigorous. Ask and it will be granted to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door shall be opened to you. It's this idea of this vigorous, um, frantic knocking that gets you repeated over, over and over again. That he says, pray like this. This is how I want you. This is how I want you to pray the Lord's prayer. Now, I love these images Jesus gives to us about prayer. I also find them deeply troubling because you and I have prayed many prayers to the Lord before, vigorously. Desperately, prayers that we that were not selfish prayers, that we knew they were good prayers. We have prayed for prayed so, for so many families that we see disintegrating, or husbands that leave their wives, or wives that leave their husbands, or children who who, who are self destructive, or or cancers that should never have been in a in a in a, a young child. We prayed those. Vigorously, we prayed them to God 
on behalf of his honor. And I mean, isn't it true that the, the most discouraging part of the Christian life are these, these unanswered prayers? It's not the unanswered prayers of, oh, let me win the Super Bowl. It's the, it's the honorable, the good prayers. And I find that to be the most painful part uh, of, our, of our existence as Christians. And, I, and I, I'll be honest with you, I don't have a good explanation for it. I find it to be the most perplexing part that, that we can, that, the, that Jesus gives us this model for prayer, these images of prayer, and then we do it and they feel like they're unanswered. Does anybody else get troubled by that? And I know that the, the copacetic things we say to each other, well, the reason God didn't answer it is because you, you might have prayed with an impure motives. Well, yeah, my, my motives are probably impure. I mean, isn't every single prayer that we pray a mixture of pure and impure motives? <laughs> I mean, um, or a lot of times we'll say things such as, oh, it's not God's timing. God's timing is perfect. And he's just saying, wait a little while. I, there are others. I always find them to ring rather hollow in my, in my heart, especially when I'm, I'm praying something that I know, I know is good. But what keeps me praying and, and keeps me in the battle for prayer is, is this third image, which he provides us in verse, um, it's verse 11. This is what keeps me praying. I, I do not pray on the basis that God will, will answer my prayers the way that I think he should answer my prayers. I keep praying because Jesus says, if you ask your father for bread, he will not give you a scorpion. I keep praying because he says, my, your father is committed to your well-being. And if you ask him for a fish, he will not give you a snake. Do you realize what he's trying to point to you? That you have a, a parent who is more committed to their children's joy than any other parent on the face of this planet. There's never been a human father. There has never been... A, a mother who wanted to answer their child's petitions in a, in a good way as much as God wants to answer ours. Now, how that relates perfectly so with unanswered prayer, I have no idea. But this is his character, that if you ask him for bread, he will not give you scorpions. And I don't understand how it fits together, but I believe in the character of God that's expressed here by Jesus. The most profound thing that I realized from this passage is the problem that we're talking about, in some sense, Jesus sets up the problem. He is aware of the problem of unanswered prayer, the, the mystery and frustration and pain of it. Do you realize that the Lord's prayer itself often goes unanswered in this life and in this world? Isn't that amazing? That the prayer Jesus teaches us to pray is not itself fully, I mean, is God's name hallowed in this world as it ought to be? Heavens, no. Has his kingdom come? Is, is his will done on earth as it is in heaven? How strange uh, that even the Lord's prayer itself goes unanswered. No, I don't, do not pray based on God's answering or not answering to my, my satisfaction. 
I pray based on the character of God, who I know is good. And I do remember the words, again, of C.S. Lewis, who, who says, do you remember? I think he says it in Shadowlands, the movie. He says, prayer doesn't change God, but it changes us. Prayer doesn't change. Actually, I think it changes both. I pray based believing that, that this image, this third image of God is true. Finally, during, there was a Twitter Q&A between a famous Christian pastor. You know, Q&A sessions on Twitter. You tweet a question and then the famous person answers it. So the question was, why is it do young adult Christians have such a difficult time praying? And his response was, noise, electronics, and distraction. It's easier to tweet than it is to pray. And everybody says, LOL, yeah, it's true. It is easier to tweet than it is to pray. But then he followed up on his answer. What counsel would you give to a Christian who finds it, a young Christian who finds it difficult to pray? And he said this. He said, you must decide whether or not you're just going to do it. You must decide whether or not you are going to do it. He uses the illustration. If a doctor came to you and said that you have this fatal condition, and unless you take this little green pill between the hours of 11 o'clock and 11.15 at night, you will die, you would never say to the doctor, well, I was too busy at night. You would never say, I, I, was, um, I was engrossed in, in a good movie tonight. You would, you would never miss it if you thought it was necessary in order to live. And so you really, it comes down to whether or not you really believe, set aside, prayers are necessary for your life. Verse 13, Jesus says, it's very cryptic at the end of the passage, but he says, you know, your father knows how to give good gifts to you, his children, and therefore how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? When was the last time you asked for more of the Holy Spirit? Do you pray for that? I mean, I'm not just the one-time gift of the Holy Spirit that comes at your conversion. Do you, do you beg and plead, give me more of the Spirit. I need the renewal of the Spirit. I need the, the fruits of the Spirit. That's the ultimate good gift. And church, uh, I'm not convinced that we need to pray the Lord's Prayer, 1,100 times a year. But I am convinced we need to pray it more frequently. And I believe that when we do, the Lord will give us a greater outpouring of the Spirit's life and presence because that's what he says. How much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask of him?